Hi, this is Tim. This is just a heads up that all the advice you're hearing in this podcast is general in nature. If you want something more specific, then feel free to contact us. Drunk accountant, drunk accountant, drunk, drunk, to drunk accountant, drunk accountant, drunk accountant, drunk, drunk, to drunk accountant, drunk accountant, drunk accountant, drunk accountant, drunk accountant. Hello and welcome to the Two Drunk Accountants podcast. It's uh, great to have you here with us. I'm just going to take a quick attendance. Uh, Dan, here, present. Uh, Tim. Ooh, that doesn't sound good to me. We run on a strict three weeks and you're out policy here on the podcast. So unfortunately for Tim, if he's not here on the podcast next week, I just... uh, I don't think he can continue, but we'll just have to wait and see to next week. I guess stay tuned, a bit of suspense. Uh, Regardless, anyway, the feedback I got from last week's episode was that, you know, it's the best episode ever without Tim, as I predicted. Um, Really, people were just sending in saying, just went so smoothly, you answered all of our questions. Uh, Dan, we think you're great. We think you're better than Tim. Tim sucks. Just standard responses. And yeah, I've heard you loud and clear, but I just can't get rid of a friend that I, like that. I just can't get rid of a friend. Uh, he's a good egg, and I think uh, I think we should all give him a break. You know, just give him. A, I mean, he's had a big enough break from the podcast, but give him a break in terms of his lack of ability in podcasting. I think he'll just get better. He'll get better the more practice he gets. So let's just wait and see next week. See if he turns up for recording, uh, you know, I don't think he can do it, but I mean, that's not for me to decide. Let's just see what happens. So this week, as promised, uh, is going to be my interview with financial planner extraordinaire, Dave Hammond. Uh, that's going to come up in just a few minutes. Uh, I recorded this pod, uh, this interview with, with Dave separately. So, uh, we will play that segment pretty soon. Uh, but first, What's the Tim and Dan Lowe? See, I remembered the tune and everything. Tim wouldn't have done that. Tim sucks. Uh, the Tim and Dan Lowe this week. Well, Tim has arrived back in the country, uh, so that's good. He seemed to have a good trip. I am still here ensuring that we release something to you guys each and every week. It's been a busy week. Uh, tax times come around very quick. Uh, I'm sure everyone's gathering all their things. Uh if you know, if if you've got a good accountant, if you're a small business, then perhaps you've already been dealing with your accountant all year, and you don't need to stress about it. So that's uh, that's something, and and a, a bit more on that a, a bit later, actually. Uh, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, yeah. So the Tim and Dan though, just been just been working hard. Um, went to trivia last night. We we renamed our team the Jurassic Bat. Um, that's a cross between Jurassic Park and Batman. Um. It's a new comic coming out, so something to be excited for there. Uh, we did terribly. We did real terribly. Uh, but still, that's exciting. Um, so, yeah, that's about it for me this week for the Tim and Dan. Though I haven't been up to too much, but, uh, yeah, just been busy. So I do have a few business updates, however. So the first one, first business update, is relevant to all of you builders, cleaners, or couriers out there. Uh, this this business update comes to me via Kerry, so thanks Kerry for this. Uh, essentially, what happened for the past few years, if you've been in the building or construction industry, every year you have to lodge something called a TPAR, 
a taxable payment annual report. And what that TPAR is, is essentially kind of like a payment summary that you provide the ATO, but not for your employees, for your subcontractors. And what you have to detail in this report is each subcontractor that you've paid during the year, how much you've paid them, whether or not they were registered for GST, uh, what their ABN is, and what their address is. And you do that for every subcontractor that you've paid, you lodge that to the ATO. And the reason they do this is because, and I think we've spoken about this in the podcast before, is because they're really targeting this, uh, this black economy, this uh, cash economy. And those tradies come up to you, they're doing some work, and I'm sure they approach many businesses and they say, hey, um, you know, this cost 1500 bucks, but if you give me cash, 1300 And they never declare the income for that 1300 So if you're a business, obviously you want a tax deduction for that $1,300, so you claim it. You say, yep, subcontractors, $1,300. And if you report to the ATO that you've paid, let's say, you know, Tim, Tim Garth subcontracting, and he's real dodgy, uh, then, and he didn't cl- declare that in his tax return, then they send Tim a letter that says, hey, Tim, you know, Dan said he's paid you $1,300 and you haven't claimed that. What's going on? And so that's one way to target, target this cash economy. Uh, but what they've done is starting from the 1st of July, 2018, so your first lodgement will be due after June, 2019 for this financial year, uh, They've extended it from building and construction to cleaners and to couriers. So if you run a business um, that hires subcontractors and you are a cleaning business or a courier business, and let's say you're, you're a courier business and you have a few subcontractors that run, run some deliveries for you, uh, then you're going to need to report those subcontractor costs and their details to the ATO every year. So what does that mean for you? Basically, it just means that you have to keep all of your contractors' ABN address and GST details um, for each subcontractor that you pay. And in in reality, you should be keeping that anyway. Uh, Software such as Xero or um, MYOB, they do allow the function to um, lodge that report with the ATO. You can tick on a button to ensure that each of those subcontractors are included in that report and at the end of the year you just review it and uh, lodge it with the ATO but yeah just keep in mind that that is something that you might you might need to do so my next business update uh, comes courtesy of Warren so thanks Warren Uh, and what he's sent me is an article that was in uh, I think it was the Australian Uh, and essentially it's an article about how to find a good accountant, what, what to look for when you're looking for an accountant. And it was, it was a pretty interesting read. The, the, the author, just pulling it up here, wherever I put it, essentially the author has come up with a few interesting points. Um, I'll go through a few of them here. Uh, the first one is that, um, the first point they give is to ensure that your accountant does the work and not an underling or a junior accountant that works for them. Now, I think this is, it's a fair point. You want someone preparing your return that um, that has the knowledge and the expertise uh, rather than a junior member who might be missing things. However, and, and this is the standard model of, you know, an accountant. Normally there's, you know, a few senior accountants and a couple of junior accountants and the junior accountants do a lot of the, the lower level work like individual tax returns. Um, 
But if I think if the business has good enough systems in place, you know, if those junior accountants are being well-trained and they're being monitored and each of those returns are being monitored and any questions that the junior accountant doesn't know, you know, they're encouraged to discuss with the senior accountant. Any questions that you have, you're encouraged to discuss with the senior accountant. Then I don't think this is such a problem. Um, I think as long as you go to a good accountancy firm, that is the difference. You know, if you're going to a place that has a terrible culture, whose training is terrible, then anyone that prepares that return is going to do a, a, a shitty job. Uh, if you go to a good accountant with good systems and good training, then that whole firm is going to prepare a decent return for you. So yeah, that, that's that's one thing to consider. Uh, the other one is go to a tech-savvy accountant, um, someone who you know might be able to set up bank feeds for investments. And yep, this is definitely true. It's going to save time. Uh, sometimes those cost of the feeds can be added to your return, but uh, definitely can save a lot of time. There's software out there that can track your investments, your dividends, your sales, your share, um, your purchases, um, ca- calculate your capital gains, all that kind of thing. Yep, definitely. Go to an accountant who's who's ahead of the curb. That's a very good idea. Uh, the other one is offshore accountants. You know, if, if your accountant uses any offshore processing, then... Um, ensure that adequate training is provided. Now, I think this is a bit contradictory to the first one because they didn't want a junior accountant preparing your return. But as long as the systems are okay, they're fine with an offshore processor. That makes no not a lot of sense to me. I'd much prefer um, a junior accountant preparing my return than an offshore processing to prepare my return. So yeah, no, I'd say don't go to an accountant that has off- offshore processing. Um, not at this stage. Um, I'd be a much bigger fan of the work being done in office um, in Australia. So the next one is, are they a CPA or a CA practice? Yep, definitely look for that. To become a, a CPA or a CA, you need to meet some um, some standards. You need to take a lot of tests. You need to do a lot of study. And doing those ensure that your work is at a particular level um, that is deemed you know, acceptable. So I I wouldn't be going to an accounting practice that isn't a CPA or CA practice. That might not mean that everyone in that practice is a CPA or a CA, but it means that that entire practice needs to keep to those standards. So um, definitely look for that logo when you're searching for an accountant. Uh, Now ask what their accounting rate is. Now this one's an interesting one. They were asking, ensuring that your accountant has an a lodgement rate with the ATO of 85% or above. Now, this means that of all the clients on the list, 85% of those clients get their returns lodged before the due date. And the article says that this is important because if that isn't met, then the accountant can lose their uh, extensions, their lodgement extensions, which means all returns would need to be lodged in October rather than in May the following year, which is the extension you get for being with an accountant. Yeah, I wouldn't be asking this of any accountant. I I don't think, you know, what I'd be looking for is how quickly they want to lodge your return. You know, it, if if they're constantly late with things, it could mean that they're a dodgy accountant or a crap accountant anyway, and they're uh, taking too long to process things. But if you ask the questions, what is your expected return time for my return? That's more an appropriate question, not what are you lodging in general? It would be, what are you lodging for me? So, yeah, I wouldn't really worry about that rate because it can also depend on clients. You know, if if, the, if have a, a bunch of uh, clients who just uh, unorganized, you know, the accountant's done their best to get them organized, but there's nothing they can do, then 
that accountant rate can blow out. Um, the other thing as well is a lot of accountants just remove clients who haven't lodged before the due date to essentially artificially inflate that rate uh, and remove them from their list. And so the list can't always, the rate can't always be something that you, uh, that you can accurately um, use anyway. So yeah, I'd be more concerned with how long they intend to spend preparing your return. The last one is don't, it's sorry, be patient and don't rush to get your return done because the, uh, the ATO are provided with a lot of information. So we've mentioned this before. So the ATO get your payment summaries, the ATO get your bank interest, they get any government payments, they get, you know, investments information, sales, shares, dividends, uh, all sent to them, managed funds, um, over time and the lodgement dates for these things vary so it might be not until October that that information is complete and why is this an advantage well it's because an accountant can download that information directly from the ATO into their accounting software which means they don't need to manually enter in all your payment summaries they don't need to manually enter in your interests your dividends um, they will review those things but the processing time is reduced, which means that the you know the, the time it takes to prepare your return and therefore possibly the cost might be reduced. Uh, you know, this is an interesting one. I mean, we don't charge someone more for getting their work done in July than we do in October, even though there might be a bit more manual processing. Uh, what what I think definitely would help though is it ensures that everything's accurate and, and correct. Um, you know, if you forgot that you worked somewhere for three weeks earlier in the year and you lodge your return before they'd lodge their information with the ATO, then you might get a letter in two months say, hey, you didn't lodge any income for this payment summary and you have to amend it. So yeah, my concern would more be ensuring that the information is accurate. So all in all, the article gives some good points. I don't think they're all valid. Um, I'd be looking more for an accountant based on their values, based on their, uh, obviously their experience and their... Uh, they're standards. So yeah, definitely some good points, good things to look for an accountant, not all of them valid, but yeah, an interesting article and you should always search for the best accountant that you can find. So that brings me to the end of the business update. Once again, without Tim, just things just flying through. This is just, it's just so much easier. Um, no one likes Tim, everyone knows that, but what can I do? What can I do? He's, he's one of the, I'm not one drunk accountant, um, I am two drunk accountants, but you know, it is what it is. So what I might do now is move us on to our interview with the one and the only David Hammond, financial planner extraordinaire. So as promised, here is my uh, interview with the one and only Dave Hammett, financial planner from uh, Sydney Wealth Advisors. G'day, Dave. G'day, Dan. Hello, guys. How you doing? Not too bad, thank you, for a Thursday, Friday even. Yeah, Friday. It is kind of awkward because we are sharing one microphone, so it's pretty intimate here. I feel like we're a band singing into the microphone like the Beatles. A male-female duet. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the male. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean... If it was me and Tim in here, I'd probably say Tim's the female and I'm the male. But I mean, you got to adapt to the situation that you're in. I'd say I'm I'm probably the female in this situation. It is what it is. I'm happy with it. So, Dave, what I was thinking is a lot of people aren't really sure. You know, there's a lot of miscommunication out here about what 
what is a financial planner? Um, you know, people have their ideas. I know I recommend financial planners to people occasionally and, and they immediately go, well, what are they going to do for me? Yeah. So my real first question for you and something that I know a lot of people might be interested in would be essentially what is a financial planner? What are the main things that you actually do? Yeah, good question, and it's one that comes up quite frequently. Um, the real gist of it is a financial planner, what they should be doing is um, generating strategy for people to deliver to their core objectives. Um, by that, what I mean is understanding what a client actually needs to achieve and wants to achieve, and then start to formulate some strategic direction um, and some action items that they can put together and put in place so that the clients can actually start to step towards and deliver to those objectives over time. Where it gets complicated for um, clients in many respects is that if you go to the wrong planner, which I think we'll get to talk about a bit later on, you find yourself being thrown into a product flog um, scenario as opposed to a strategic discussion. So in answer to your question, Dan, the, the, the reality is you want a strategist, you don't want a salesman. Yes, that's, that's, a, good, that's a really good point. I mean, you don't want someone just selling you, you know, something that they're getting commissions from um, or, or anything like that. So in, pl- in terms of, you know, a, a strategist, what, what would the main things in that strategy involve? Like, obviously, I know um, investments would be one, but, you know, insurances, are, are other things, like what, what's involved? Yeah, there's a whole heap of things. So the, the first two things you look at um, really are from an investment point of view, uh, what, what's available in your toolkit once you've understood the client. Um, the reason I say that is that you can start off with you know, maybe 50 different strategies and ideas that you could use on that client or use with them, but until you've understood what they want, the things they do and don't like, uh, their preferences, you don't really know which are your options left in the tool bag to work with. So um, it ranges from different investment instruments, so it can be standard superannuation, can be self-managed super funds, it can also be investments outside of super. Um, and further to that, a lot of people um, find themselves in a position where strategically they also need a level of insurance to make sure that they're covered and protected um, and that they can carry the cost of a significant life event should they become ill or accident, um, wipes them out of the workforce. So really it comes down to investment side and the different um, components within that and then the insurance component which then has multiple subsets. Um, but no one case is the same. Uh, and that's why if you've got a strategic financial planner who will work on a strategy for you, you're always going to come out better than somebody that's just going to reach for the first product they can find. Yeah, so I, so in reality, like I, I know if I, if I mention someone, oh, you need to go see a financial planner, and they think, oh, I'd, why do I want to invest in shares that is going to tell me to invest in a share base? It really depends on what their objectives are. I mean, if, if they're dead set on owning a property or if, or if they're trying to save for something and, and they're you know, you've, you've got to work on their cash or their um, budgeting kind of stuff as well. You, you would kind of identify what their goals are and then the best way just to achieve those goals financially, I guess, is that? Yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. But essentially, the way that I look at it is when you're sitting down with a client for the first time, the outcome of that should be that you're basically you're navigating a path with those clients to help them decide and decipher exactly what of the options that are available on the table at the beginning of the meeting become viable solutions for them at the end of the meeting. So you're really holding their hand and helping them make decisions and giving them guidance and advice along the way. Um, the idea being that you leave the, the meeting with only one or two strategies that are going to deliver to the client's core objective, which you'll identify really early in the meeting. All right, yes, yeah, so that, makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, 
so I guess my next question then would be what makes a good financial planner versus a, a bad financial planner? And, and I, I've got another question about kind of the Royal Commission stuff later, but I guess I want to know if, if we're sitting down with a financial planner and you know, you're going through my objectives and you're coming out with some viable strategies, obviously you've kind of alluded to one already. You don't want someone who's just got pre-packaged things that they're trying to sell you. But yeah, what, what would be the main things that you look for in a good financial planner versus someone who may not be as good? Yeah, it's a really, really good question and it's quite varied in terms of the differences between good and bad. Um, generally speaking, bad advisors will very, very quickly jump to a conclusion in terms of what they're going to do for you to solve a solution that they believe, sorry, solve a problem with a solution that they believe that you have. Um, any planner that comes to that point of a, a meeting within the first 20 minutes, half an hour, you can almost guarantee is just trying to make a sales commission target and is just trying to sell the first thing that they think you're going to take um, without giving any real thought to the consequences of it. Um, the, other, the other couple of components are junior planners that haven't quite done their, um, their full apprenticeships, if for the want of a better word. So being put in front of a 22-year-old uh, financial planner um, who's probably never seen many cases um, and suddenly coming to you with recommendations and advice um, to take that with a pinch of salt because really you really need to be um, a lot more experienced before you let loose on your own. But unfortunately, uh, in our industry, you just have to, at this moment in time, satisfy a few criteria um, and you can be out there advising clients uh, relatively quickly on your own. Now, a good planner, a good planner will be somebody that will take the time to sit down with you um, I've already mentioned it, go through what we call a fact-finding process and understand what you want, what you need, what you don't like, what you don't need, um, and spend the time actually getting to know you and build up some rapport. And that sounds like a really naff comment to make, but building up rapport really helps you understand the client's quirks and, and lets you understand the things that make them tick. And that stuff can become really important when you're getting to the end of the process and you're putting the strategy together for them. You don't want to have wasted your time by just being very, very black and white with the client. Think you understand what they want and then you put together a solution for them and you've mis misheard the brief or you've misunderstood them entirely. So a good planner will put the time and energy into understanding what you do want, what you don't want, and working through those solutions with you. Yeah, I think it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because something that I've, I've just spoke about in the, uh, the business update is I read an article about what to find in a good accountant. And the article was mainly focusing on kind of individual tax returns. And one of the points in that article was, you know, look out to see if there's going to be um, the actual accountant preparing your work or a junior accountant preparing your work. And I think it, it could be a little bit different in this situation in that, you know, it, my argument for that was, well, really, you should be looking for a good firm versus a bad firm um, for an accountant. Because if you're, you know, in reality, you know, the senior accountant might not be able to do every job every day. But under the guidance of the senior accountant, the junior accountant's not making any decisions that the senior accountant wouldn't. Um, so if you were approaching, is this different in financial planning? If I was approaching, say, a firm, let's say there's uh, you and, and if you had a, an off-site young bloke working for you, um, really you'd be looking for someone that is kind of setting the strategic direction over just a sole bloke that's 22 by himself. Was that, is that, would that be correct? Yeah, that's a pretty fair analogy. That basically sums it up. Um, and you tend to find that that model of financial planning practice does exist out there. So you'll have the senior guy and you might have one, two, one or two junior guys. 
Um, and you've really got to just be very careful and clear on actually who's providing the strategic direction for you, whether it's got any oversight from the supervising planner or whether it's just the junior guys going with what they want to do. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, I, something that we haven't really touched on, which has definitely been obviously a lot of in the news lately with the Royal Commission would be, you know, a lot of people out there are fee resistant, but, you know, fee structures, you know, obviously a lot of people are searching, you know, traditionally a lot of financial planners are getting their fees from commissions by selling products to their clients. Um, but what would be, you know, how do financial planners, how does a good financial planner get income from a client? You know, how do you, how should you pay for your, that service essentially? Yeah, it's a good question, and what we're what I'm noticing, and certainly the way that I've approached my practice um, over the last few years, has been to charge in the same basis that an accountant would. So you quantify a set dollar fee, which is commensurate to the amount of effort and skill you've got to place into the work that you're going to do on an ongoing basis, and you collect that fee on a. a, a frequency which is agreed between the client and yourself so whether that's an annual fee or a monthly fee um, the older school model which is just a basic percentage of the amount of money you've got so for example if you've got a hundred thousand dollars a traditional financial planner would charge one percent so he'd get one thousand dollars every year of your money um, whether or not you went up to a five thousand five hundred thousand dollar balance um, you would you would then be paying five thousand dollars a year for what would be essentially the same level of service. The service doesn't change. The only moving part is the actual dollar figures. Um, so in that respect, I think most of those practices now that are looking past the Royal Commission um, are going to start to embrace a fee for service strategy, um, a bit like an accountant would. Yeah. So essentially, you know, I think the way that financial planners would justify that in the past would be. Well, I'm, we're not being paid a lot right now for all the effort that we're putting in, but later on, you know, that's where, you know, we're going to get paid back for the services that we did earlier that weren't really paid for. But essentially, if you're just paying for the work that's actually done or performed, then, you know, you're not being ripped off at the start or at the end. It's, that's the actual cost of that work being done. So I think that is a much, much better um, way to do it. And that's definitely how accountants do it as well. I mean, it would be, it would be crazy to go to an accountant that said, you know, we're going to take 1% of your revenue every year, regardless of what that revenue is. Um, no one would go to them. So it makes no sense why you'd go to a financial planner. You know, it, it maybe makes sense to tie a bit of remuneration to whatever your, you know, if your goal was to, you know, increase your fund value by a lot, then maybe, but still that seems dodgy. It's It, it makes a lot more sense just to pay for the work that's been done rather than based on some, percentage of 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 uh value um so i guess that leads us a little bit to the royal commission obviously that's been pretty big on the news lately um what's what's your take on it i mean as you said a lot of people are probably going to start moving to the fee for service um but it'd, it'd just be interesting to get a financial planner's take on on the whole thing yeah, it's, it's funny, but it's not funny because it's actually been quite an embarrassment. So if you're in the industry and um, you're meeting with clients frequently like I do, um, and they are following the news, some of the questions that you get asked, um, not that I would ever defend the positions on certain things, but some of the things that have come out of the Royal Commission are embarrassing. Um, for example, things like um, the behavior of the big four banks. So, you know, charging dead people advice fees, um, tr trading client registers like they're commodities. So, so one planner moves on and wants to leave and then another planner comes and buys his book off him and there's money changing hands for basically what's just a list of names and numbers. Um, there's a whole raft of other things, but at the same time, the industry is also going through some significant education 
um, reforms, which are going to significantly thin out the population of uh, financial planners. Um, they've now got, believe it or not, you've now got to be degree qualified um, past 2024 to be able to provide financial advice. It amazes me that you don't have to be already, but they've set the standard now um, and they're now making sure that planners are prepared and ready to part ways with the cash needed to go through the, uh, the graduation programs and get themselves up to degree level. Yeah, that's insane, actually, that that you could be seeing financial advisors that you know who are handling all of your investments, your money, your super, your possibly your insurance, and they're just you know they've done a small course to get their to get their qualification. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't see an accountant that's just done a you know that isn't CPA or CA read like uh, qualified that have gone through the process to become to that point. So yeah. I think um, I think you you've definitely put a bit of a positive spin that um, the industry is going to go through some education and and some improvements and perhaps the advice in the future and and it sounds to me like the advice that um, and the structure that you already run is something that we're going to be seeing even more of and and definitely something that uh, something that if you're looking for a financial planner you should uh, you should be listening to this and and focusing on what um, the advantages or the the, the best practices that that Dave's describing at the moment. So I do have one more question for you, and it's probably the most serious out of all of them. Uh, Are you Team Dan or Team Tim? That's a a tough question, but I'll take the baby way out since Tim's not here, mate. It's Dan all the way. Yeah, no, I'd expect that even if Tim was here, to be honest. Most people say it. I think I should run a Twitter poll, Team Dan versus Team Tim. And we're going to see pretty widely that it's it's 98% Dan and maybe like a few of Tim's relatives saying Tim Tim just because they feel, they feel bad. No, I don't even think Jade, Tim's wife, would say Tim Tim. Um, but, you know, poor Tim. He is what it is. But thanks for coming in. Thanks for having a chat. It's good. I think you provide a lot of great information for everyone and uh, maybe we'll have you back on one day. Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks uh, for having me on. It was a pleasure. Cool. All right. So that was my interview with Dave Hemmett, financial planner from Sydney Wealth Advisors. Uh, If you do have any questions at all for Dave or for a financial planner, then yeah, definitely get in touch with him. As I said, Sydney Wealth Advisors, you can uh, look him up on the interwebs and uh, and find him there. His contact details are all there. But yeah, he's uh, definitely one of the better financial planners around. As you can hear, he's He's been doing the way that the industry is going to move in terms of fee structures and, and all of that um, for a while. And that's how his business has run even before this Royal Commission all, all came into it. So definitely wanted to get him on to get a better idea of you know what a good financial planner does and how they work compared to, compared to the rest of the industry that we're hearing about at the moment. So yeah, thanks, uh, thanks Dave for coming in. So I'm now going to move on to my other thing this week. Now, what is my other thing? I've definitely, what have I done this week? Ah, I've got one. Uh, my other thing this week is season five of Fortnite was just released. I haven't been playing it as much lately, been very busy with work and, and whatnot, but uh, season five, Fortnite, it's great times. Uh, they've added a whole bunch of new stuff and obviously get to start from scratch again and, and no one knows how terrible I really am at this game, so... Yep, Season 5 of Fortnite. If you don't play it already and you're interested in some games, go give it a crack. Uh, That about sums us up for this week. Next week on the podcast, we'll see whether or not Tim makes it. Um, I think he will, maybe, but we'll see. Uh, 
Thank you for your time. As I said, if you've got any questions for Dave, get in contact with him. But if you have any general questions for us, uh, send us a tweet at Two Drunk Podcast on Twitter, uh, Two Drunk Accountants on Facebook, or Two Drunk Podcast at gmail.com. Shoot us an email with any questions that you've got, and I would love to uh, love to answer them on a future podcast. All right. Thanks for that, and we'll catch you later.